Good morning, good morning. Can you guys hear me? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Thanks, brother. So, we're going to start this off. Got a question for y'all. Why do you do what you do? Like in the broadest sense of the term, why do you do what you do? Like, why do you choose chocolate over vanilla ice cream? Why did you move into the area that you currently live? Why did you choose to get married? Why do you get angry? And the list goes on and on. Why, why, why? Why do you do what you do? Well, the way that the Bible would answer this question is to suggest that the reason behind everything you do is because of one vital part of your being, that is your heart. Now, not heart in the organ sense of the term that pumps blood throughout your whole body. That's not what it's meaning by heart. It means a little more than that. In the Jewish mindset, the heart was much more than just your vital organ. The heart, it was responsible for sin. The heart was responsible for your passions or your willpower. The heart is what produces your desires. The heart was so powerful that if your heart was wicked, it would even control the way you understand truth. And likewise, if your heart was bent towards God, it would drive you to glorify God in all that you do. Let me give you a more modern example of this. Michael Jordan. Anybody here know who Michael Jordan is? Okay, we got a couple people in there. Michael Jordan, anybody that knows about basketball, you've heard about Michael Jordan, and what do they say about Michael Jordan? He's the greatest basketball player of all time. Let me give you an acronym. They say it's GOAT. Have you ever seen GOAT used? And some of y'all are like, what's GOAT? G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Michael Jordan was the GOAT. So if anybody knew Michael Jordan, you watched him play, you listened to his interviews, what, would Michael's, what was Michael Jordan's heart? It was to be the greatest basketball player. Anybody that played with him knew this. If you listen to his Hall of Fame speech, it was all about how he was proving the doubters wrong and how he was crushing his competition. That's kind of vain, Michael. (laughs) But that was his heart, to be the greatest basketball player ever. Let me read you a quote by Michael Jordan. He said, the game is my wife. It demands loyalty and responsibility, and it gives me back fulfillment and peace. This is what Michael Jordan's heart was. Why did he do what he did? It was to be the best at basketball. So as you're anticipating and thinking about what you're going to do this new year and what you're planning out and making a list of resolutions, I want to turn and shift your focus to the heart of Jesus, primarily here in John 4. And not only will you see his heart, but also accept the invitation that Christ is giving for you to have a heart for the things that he has a heart for. In other words, in this text, what are the things that Jesus is concerned about and how should they affect not only this upcoming year, but the rest of your life? So what will you do? Well, let's let Jesus' heart and what he does direct that. So we got a lot to dive into. As Brother Tommy said, 40, 42 verses exactly. It's a lot. So the way we're going to navigate through this text, I'm going to give you four things that Jesus has a heart for or four things that Jesus cares about in John 4. The first we'll look at is Jesus cares about going to places where others don't want to go. Secondly, Jesus cares about the marginalized. 
Third, Jesus cares about sin. And then fourth and finally, Jesus cares about the will of God. So let's dive in first. Jesus cares about going to places where others don't want to go. If you listen to the text that was read to you, before we even unpack this text, one of the things that's critical that you must understand is the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. You get a hint of it from the woman's statement in verse 9. She says, how is it that Jesus, you, a Jew, can ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The woman knew that for a Jew to ask for some water from a Samaritan was something abnormal, to say the least. This goes back to the 8th century B.C. Samaria, which was the northern kingdom's capital in Israel, was captured and taken over by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, in taking over um, Samaria, they deported all the wealthy and all the Israelites of importance out of Samaria. And what they did was they imported Gentiles into the land, and these Gentiles intermarried with the Israelites and even began joining together their pagan beliefs with Jewish beliefs. So therefore, for the rest of Israel, when they looked at Samaria, they said that these people were not really Jews anymore. They were to be treated like Gentiles. This is the history of Samaria. John Piper says this about the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews believed Samaritans were ceremonially unclean, they were racially impure, they were religiously heretical, and therefore they were meant to be avoided. So these Jews, they're half-breeds, they're heretics, they're not gospel-centered, they're not true Jews. Avoid them at all costs. Therefore, for Jesus, it was completely intentional for him to go through Samaria. And not only go through Samaria, but to stay there for two days and end up staying here in a place where Jews would never go, let alone have fellowship with. It's intentional. So I remember the first time I ever heard about overseas missions. I was new to the faith, and in my mind, somebody told me about going overseas or going to these unreached places or places that people didn't want to go, and I was like, what? You look like Pakistan? I've seen it on the news. There's bombings and stuff happening over there. Why would somebody go over there? Like, in my mind, all these places overseas, you think like a Haiti or like some of these places that we have that give a bad rep for not being as up to date or having violence and stuff. And in my mind, I'm like, why would somebody ever go there? Why? Why would they go? Well, Jesus says, because if I do not go or if I do not send you to go, then they will perish for all of eternity. Think about it. Many of us in here, forget about some of the places overseas, we idolize America. We think America is the place to be. But guess what? America is mostly made up of what? Gentiles. If the Jews, if Jesus didn't go to other places, to these other nations, to other people groups, none of us in here, if we're not Jewish, would even hear about the truth of the gospel. We would be the same ones perishing for all eternity. God was gracious to take his message to the ends of the earth as we're, as we're continuing to do. And in the end, all nations will come to a knowledge of the truth. So the question is, do you care about going to the places that others don't want to go as well? And not only do you care about that, it's God calling you to go. There's some of us in this room that God has been pressing upon your, on your heart for the last couple years. You need to go. 
You're like, well, should I? It's not as comfortable over there. God is telling you to go. I think about a couple years ago when I was in Louisville. My wife and I moved to Louisville to start seminary. Um, we went to Louisville. We'd been married for a couple years. We didn't have any kids at the time. And uh, we were like, man, we got to find some friends here. We got to find some people that we can kick it with and just hang back with and people enjoy the times with. And God in his graciousness gave us this wonderful couple. Same season of life as us, new to seminary, no kids. Freedom. I have a son now, so I don't have the same freedom, but it's okay. And we met them, and we're like, man, we love this couple, Michael and Jim, and these are our homies. We love them. Like, we would have fun all the time, stay up to 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Don't judge us, please. Um, <laughs> golly conversations were taking place. Um, we would hang out all the time. Like, we love Michael and Jen. For the next two years, they were some of our closest friends in Louisville. Now, we knew you come to seminary, the reason you come there is not to stay, it's to go out. And we had to end up coming back to Indianapolis. But I was like, Michael and Jen, we're like, y'all should come to Indianapolis with us. We're going to make sure y'all find a job. I don't care if I got to make up one. We're going to find y'all a job. Y'all need to come with us. We can't lose y'all. Or at least if y'all stay in Louisville, Louisville, Indianapolis, it's what, an hour, 45 minutes away? That ain't that bad. Just stay in Louisville. But God called them to go. God sent them to Asia, to Malaysia. And they could not fight the press in God's heart. They talked, they thought about it, they even had a job offer here in the States, and something just kept pressing in on them to say, we got to go. And I was like, no, do you really? But then it hit me. I was like, you have to go. God needs you to go over there and take the gospel. The same way he may need someone else here to go to take the gospel to other places that people may not want to go. Maybe it's not overseas. Maybe it's here in the States where the gospel's not being placed. Maybe there's a rural part of Indiana that does not have gospel preaching churches, and we need to go. Or maybe you're not the person that goes. You say, I'm not the person to go, but maybe God is calling you to help the people that will go. You think about what you're going to do this year. Maybe you commit to helping some other missionaries to go. As you stay here and do gospel ministry here in Castleton, Indianapolis, but you help support others that will go to take the gospel to all nations. So the question is, what is your Samaria? What's the Samaria that you're called to go? What's the Samaria that you're called to support? What places do you need to care that God's presence will be present there? Secondly, Jesus cares about the marginalized. It was one thing that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan, but it was an added layer that Jesus was talking to a woman. That was a, that was a big deal. Look at what the disciples are thinking when, it come, when they come back and see Jesus talking to this woman in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that Jesus was talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Think about this. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah, the long-awaited hope of all the world. The one that was told in the prophets to come back and wipe every tear from our eye, to fix everything that was wrong, that was broken, to heal our iniquities, to cleanse us. The Messiah, the one we were waiting for. And the disciples are marveling, like, why is he talking to that woman? Well, in order to understand why this is the case, you have to understand that women in the ancient times were seen as being unintelligent, untrustworthy, less than a man, helpless, and even objects for pleasure. 
Let me read you a couple quotations from some Jewish leaders in the time of Jesus' day. Rabbi Eliezer, he says, if a man teaches his daughter Torah, that is the Bible, the Old Testament, if a man teaches his daughter Torah, it is as bad as if he taught her adultery. Read you another quote, someone else. It is better for the words of the law, that means the Bible, to be burned that they should, than that they should be given to a woman. This is from some contemporaries of Jesus' time. One of that famous contemporary Jewish historian, Josephus. Let me read you what Josephus says. The testimony of a woman is not accepted as valid because of their lightheadedness and brashness of the female sex. Let me duck for any women, throw some at me. <laughs> I, Josephus said it, not me. But do you understand why the disciples foolishly questioned Jesus talking to this woman? It was worthless for him to talk to her in their minds because they weren't as smart, weren't as intellectual, and they could even be a cause for lust. Sounds a little familiar today, doesn't it? Therefore, the gospel of John is very intentional to show us the dignity and worth of women in the ministry of Jesus. Who was the first person that Jesus reveals himself to when he resurrects? A woman. When Jesus refused to tell certain religious leaders who he was, do you know who he told that he was Messiah to here in verse 26? A woman. Jesus is showing that despite of the foolishness of their day, women were also created in the image of God. And so they should be treated with dignity, respect, protection. And as we'll see, they will be critical to the mission of the gospel going to all nations. So I'm going to keep bringing up some of my own shortcomings. A couple years ago, my buddies, everybody get you some good friends. Always have good friends. And your best friends that you can have is the friends that will tell you truth and tell you when you're messing up. A couple of my buddies, they were talking to me. They was like, Jeff, man, like, you know, we kick it all the time. We hang, bro. Love each other, man. We've seen some stuff in your life. And I was like, some stuff in my life? What you talking about? They say, man, we can kind of see, man, you struggle with some sexist views of women. And it's like, the reason we know it, bro, we've had to deal with it in our own hearts. And I was like, sexist against women? I love women. My mom's a woman. My wife's a woman. How could I be sexist? Seriously? I love women. Women are my, I got friends that are women. How could that be? And they're like, man, bro, just, we can just see in the way that you approach certain situations and the way that you view certain things. There's always this devaluing of women and their opinions and stuff. And we kind of see it, bro. And it's not like you're alone, man. Like, we've literally done the same thing. And the only reason we're saying this is because we've had to see it in our own hearts. And I started to think. I was like, dang. That's true. I started thinking about growing up. Why did I always listen to my dad more than I listened to my mom? It's easier to listen to my dad versus my mom. Why was that? I was thinking, like, man, my wife has kind of told me she felt like she didn't feel heard at times. I'm like, seriously? I was listening. I could repeat back everything you said. What do you mean you don't feel heard? <laughs> that don't make sense. It started hitting me. And within a couple months, spirit just started bringing the truth to my heart to show me even my blind spots. Even the way I would value if they're having a conversation, a theological conversation, it was easy for me to hear it from a guy. But then when a woman said, I want me to go back and check what she said. She sure she executed that right. Just these little small things, they started to come to the light. So what I learned was that the foolishness of the first century wasn't too much different from the foolishness in our own day. 
This was an area in my life and in our society that we must repent of. I had to repent of and get a biblical view of our fellow image bearers of God. And don't get me wrong, I can hold a biblical view of complementarianism. And yet that does not violate or deny the value of my sisters in Christ who are critical to the mission of God. Jesus engages this woman. Despite what the people are thinking, he engages this woman. And as we'll see in the text a little later, this woman does some amazing things for the gospel. So Jesus cares about women. Therefore, we should as well. So if you're thinking, what's some practical things I can do to work on this? If I struggle with this, what's some practical things that I can do? Well, start out with listening to some godly women. It's simple. Listen to some godly women. And not just your wife and your mother, who you definitely should listen to. Listen to some godly women. Pick up some godly books by some godly women. Grab a book by Nancy Lee DeMoss if you wouldn't normally read Nancy Lee DeMoss. It's not only for women. Grab you. There we go. Pick up a book by Trillia Newbell, a book by Jackie Hill Perry. Listen, you will see that God created us different with uniquenesses that some of our sisters in Christ may see some things that we would not naturally see with some of our male way of thinking. Or if there's areas of ministry that needs to be filled. Consider some ladies and sisters in Christ, despite what culture may say, step up. Like, we, you're critical. We need some sisters in Christ to step up and say, you know what? There's a need over here. I can do that. I can, you know what? I have a passion for that, too. Step up. We need that because the gospel is critical for using all of us for his namesake. Jesus cares about women, so let us continue this care as well. Thirdly, Jesus cares about sin. As we read in verses 7 through 15, Jesus is engaging with this woman of Samaria, and he's inviting her to ask of him living water. However, she's confused about what Jesus is actually referring to when he asks about living water. Now, in verses 16 through 26, Jesus is going to explain to her what he means when he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, and it will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, you want this living water that I have? You want this living water? First, go grab your husband. And she's like, I'm single, Jesus. I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right in saying that. You don't have a husband. You've had five of them, and the one you're with right now, he's not your husband. In my mind, when this happened, I could see her drinking some water, and so she said that she spits it out. Like, <laughs> how did you know that? Jesus said, the one you're with right now, he's not your husband. So what does she do when Jesus, comes, when Jesus tells her about her sin? What does she do? Well, if you read next, she deflects with a theology question. Well, Jews say we should worship over there, but us Samaritans, we worship over here. How many of us, when Jesus puts sin in our face and shows our sin, how many of us use some philosophical or theological question to get around it? Think about myself. I definitely do it. Jesus tell me to do something. I'm thinking like, well, technically, Jesus, if you think about it, like, do we really got to do it this way? I want to justify or deflect, run around. That's exactly what she does. She wants to deflect away from what Jesus is saying. But guess what? Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the bait. He answers her question. By turning her attention to what really matters. He's like, well, technically, the Jews, they have the Old Testament and Samaritans. They only use the Pentateuch, which is the first five books. So technically, the Jews have a better theology than the Samaritans. But 
ultimately, it's foolish to debate whether or not Jerusalem or or, or Jerusalem is the place of worship. Why? Because the time is coming, and according to verse 23, the time is now when regardless of where you are, you will only be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. So in other words, you will only be able to worship the Father when you know the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So whether you're in Jerusalem or Samaria or Timbuktu here in Castleton or down south in Greenwood or in east side of Indianapolis or in Mexico, or it doesn't matter where you are. The only way you will be able to worship God is if you know who God is truthfully and if you have the Holy Spirit. True worshipers will worship God wherever they are as long as they are worshiping the true God that sent his Messiah. And they have the spirit. And this woman, she knows enough of the Old Testament to respond to Jesus. She says, you know what, Jesus? Okay, I see you're going with some of this theology. You're saying this. But guess what? When the Messiah comes, it's talked about in Deuteronomy, a prophet like Moses, when he comes, I at least know that. When he comes, he'll settle this whole debate, even that stuff that you said. He'll, he'll, he'll settle all that, Jesus. And I can just imagine Jesus stepping back like, <laughs> daughter, I am he. I am that Messiah. So look at this. This is the way that Jesus deals with this sinner, with this woman who probably came to this well at the sixth hour because of her ostracization in her her society, the way she was looked at because of her sin. This is why she came here. And look at the way Jesus is dealing with this sinner. He's gracious. He's gentle. He's truthful. But ultimately, he points her to hope in the Messiah. I think some of us definitely need to reassess the way we address sin at times. I remember I was first rebuked by a guy that I look up to. He was a mentor of mine. Loved this guy, man. I looked up to him. He was godly. Loved the Lord. First time he rebuked me, he actually sent it through a, a Facebook message. Now, on Facebook, I was the juggernaut. I was the guy on Facebook whose name was Jeff, a Christian. I had got saved, came to a knowledge of the Lord. So I'm like, man, if I see some false teaching or some immoral stuff on Facebook, I'm going to get on there and I'm going to handle it. Turn or burn, baby. That's what I'm telling him. Turn or burn. Get on there with the truth. And he writes me one day. He's like, man, Jeff, he says, bro, I'm encouraged, man, to see the Lord working into your heart. Like, I'm, I'm encouraged to see the growth that you've taken to be the guy that you was then. This guy who didn't love the Lord now, and you're living for him, and you're even publicly sharing your faith, even on social media. Man, I commend that, man. Praise be to God. But as I see you kind of doing it on Facebook, man, you, you're actually right a lot of times. But the way you go about it is completely wrong. It's unloving sometimes. It comes off as sort of judgmental. And though I commend you for having the truth, there's a way to give the truth that doesn't cause people to turn away. He said, you think about Corinthians, Paul says, would you rather me come to you with a spirit of gentleness or a rod of discipline? Don't get me wrong. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes you got to be sharp in your rebuke. The times you need to take the truth and be gentle with it. And it hit me. I was like, man, you know what? I ain't even going to argue. You're right. I think about Jesus. Jesus didn't always come at people the way he came at the Pharisees. There was other times that Jesus was gentle. The way he's with this woman right now is gentle. But check this out. Because Jesus cares about sin, church, we should care about sin. We cannot understand the gospel if we don't have a healthy view of sin and how to deal with it. 
So don't confuse what I'm saying that we're somehow supposed to ignore sin. There's two extremes. Some people will want to be so nice that they don't tell people what's wrong and they lie to them. Or some people can care about rebuking sin, but all they give is truth. Truth, 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 and no grace. Both of those are wrong. Jesus, in his wisdom, gives us a model for how to deal with sin the way he deals with this woman in Samaria. Therefore, for us, he's telling us, be gracious, be gentle, be truthful. And ultimately, when you do that, point them to hope in the Messiah. Jesus cares about sin, so should we. Fourth, and finally, Jesus cares about the will of God. So Jesus invites this woman to drink from the living water. He then reveals himself as the Messiah, and he would direct people to true worship by the Spirit. Now the question remains, what does it really mean to worship God, Jesus? And Jesus answers this question in verses 31 through 42 as he instructs his disciples. So in these verses, we see the disciples, they start off, they're trying to be do-gooders. They're like, Jesus, eat. Stop. Eat, Jesus. That's why we stopped here in Samaria in the first place. You were hungry. You were famished. Jesus, we got you some food. Stop and eat. Stop. And Jesus says, I already have food that y'all know nothing about. And the disciples, confused like the woman when she was off for living water, they're like, food, food. Jesus, what food did he have? They're looking at each other like, did somebody give him food? John, did you give him food? The disciple who Jesus loved, I knew you probably gave him some food. John. Snuck Jesus some food. And Jesus comes in. He clears up the confusion. He says, hey, hey, look, look, listen to me. Listen to me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So what is the will of God for Jesus? What's the will of God for Jesus that Jesus is talking to here? Well, we'll jump over a couple chapters. If you have your Bibles open, you can just jump to chapter six. If not, I'll read it. I'll read a quick session out of here. John chapter 6, 35, we'll see Jesus combines this thought of thirst and food and the will of God. John 6, verse 35 says, Jesus said to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me. Yes, some of you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The will of God for Jesus is to bring the kingdom of God into this broken world and redeem everything that was broken, beginning with humanity that was destined for hell for all eternity because of their sin. So this is the gospel. How can Jesus engage with this woman and offer to give her some living water when she is this broken sinner? How can he do that? God is just. How can he just give her something when she does not deserve it? Well, this is the gospel. This woman who knew her sin, who knew that she was broken. Jesus is saying, the only way you can get this water, me, is if I pay for that penalty, that sin that you've done. 
So it's easy for us to look at this woman in Samaria and be like, well, look at her. She's that sinner over here. But guess what? This text calls every single one of us to see yourself in the text. In some degree, you're the woman at the well. You're the sinner. You're the outcast. You're the one who doesn't deserve grace. And Jesus, in his goodness, his will, the will of the Father is going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer the punishment for sinners. He would die and be resurrected. So that sin that we have, this woman at the well that she has, well, that punishment was put on Jesus. And that righteousness that he has from living a perfect life and doing the will of God perfectly, that reward that he gets for that, now this woman and anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, they receive that same benefit. And this is the gospel. So it was the will of God for Jesus to go to the cross, to die be buried, and resurrect for all humanity. So if that's the will of Jesus from God, well, what is the will of God for us? What's the will of God in our life? How does that apply to us? Well, we see that in verses 39 through 42 back in John chapter 4. So go back to John 4 if you can. Starting to verse 39, John 4. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of you that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So what's the will of God for us? It's the same that it was for this woman of Samaria, to proclaim the kingdom of God. Like, think about that. Let this sink in. What we just read in this story, Jesus reveals himself to a Samaritan, not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. He entrusts himself and his truth to an outcast of society, a pagan, a sinful person. But he doesn't do it for the sake of being a radical. That's not why he's doing it. He does it because God uses the weak and unlikely in order to show his power. This story is bigger than us. It's about a sovereign God who steps in the unlikeliest of situations and does something that only he can do. That's how he takes this sinner or this woman, this outcast, and when he uses her, a whole town is brought to salvation. I hope this encourages somebody in here. This woman who was an outcast this woman who would come at different hours so she wouldn't be seen. This woman who had had five husbands. We don't know if she killed them or if they died on their own. <laughs> this woman with a guy now who's not her husband, this broken individual, Jesus comes in and he saves her. He gives her this living water and she does something that is miraculous. She takes a gospel to her whole town and these people are coming in by the swarm to be saved and to know this Jesus and they're like, you know what? This woman was right. We believe when she said it, but even what we believe because we've seen him with our own eyes. This should encourage somebody in here. Maybe you're that sinful person. Or at least that's what has been said. You're thinking in your head like, man, I know my past. I mean, this woman got some stuff, but I really have some stuff. There's sins that I've committed, stuff that I've done that I cringe at every time it comes to my mind. Well, this is for you. Or maybe you've never amounted to your parents' expectations. You've never compared well with your siblings who just killed it, and you're like the stepchild. Well, this is for you. 
Or maybe in society they would say, well, you're less than, you're not up to here because of your career, or whatever it is. You're the weirdo, whatever people would say about you. Well, this should be encouragement to you. Or even if you're your worst enemy, always doubting that God can use you, Always saying, well, I wish that person was here to share this truth about God because I'm not as articulate. I don't have it all together. My friend, man, they can really share the gospel. This is for you. When God puts his hand on you, when he touches you, when he changes you and he saves you and he empowers you by his spirit, you will shut the mouth of all skeptics and doubters, even yourself and even Satan. Not because of your might. It's not because you're strong or how much willpower you have, but it's because God's will is for you. And sinful humanity, this redeemed sinful people, will be used to expand his kingdom and take it to the ends of the earth. Therefore, the will of God for us is to be bold to proclaim Christ's name. Because the will of God for Jesus was to redeem us by his death, burial, and resurrection. So let's bring this home. Let's kind of conclude. Let's bring this home. In John 4, we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. We see that Jesus cares about going to places where others don't want to go. We also see that he cares about the marginalized. We also see that Jesus cares about sin. And ultimately, we see that Jesus cares about the will of God. To put it simply, the heart of the Messiah in John 4 is to do the will of God by showing all humanity that their greatest need is knowing and living according to God's word. So as you're planning for this new year, thinking what will you do, you're making your resolutions, these things that you want to do, I want you to ask yourself, do you care about the things that Jesus cares about? Are you orienting your life after the will of God? And I know the reality. Some of us, we're not here today. Some of us, we've been in slumps before. We all know what it's like to be in a slump. And some of you here may say, you know what, man, my desires right now, like I'm struggling to even believe, let alone care about all these things and be on mission like this. Well, guess what? The Bible says that this text is meant for you. That living water is not only for the beginning of when you come to know Christ. That living water is for now and it's for it to come. Jesus is saying, drink from me. If you're feeling depleted, you need to drink from him. Go back to him. It is a never-ending well. And guess what? When you have it and you taste it, it becomes a well for others. And that's how God uses you. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I'm just not feeling it, I challenge you. Pray to God. Ask God to renew your affections. Get into his word and the spirit of God with the truth of the word will renew your affections. It is God's will that you live according to his purpose and that your heart be like that heart of your savior. And if there's somebody in here who this is your first time coming to a church, maybe somebody drug you in for the New Year's, you've been hearing this, but you're like, man, it's Jesus Something about this Jesus, and he can offer me this living water. I want to know what that's about. If that's you, let me encourage you with Isaiah 55 as we wrap up. Isaiah 55, I'm sure, was in the the mind of Jesus and even the gospel and the, the, the writer of John 
Let me read for you Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make to you an everlasting covenant. This is what Jesus is telling you. Come to him. Stuff you're seeking, it will not satisfy. But the living water and the bread of life, it will. And we got some people up here that I'm sure will be able to pray for you. Anybody in here, Tommy, the other pastors, will definitely tell you what that's like. Let's pray.